Hello and welcome to episode 198 of the Tech Reformation, where the world of technology meets the worldview of Christianity. I'm Craig, and I'm here today with Ben and Derek, two original hosts, which is super exciting. Thanks for being here, guys. Hello. I'm sorry David can't be here. Me too. But I'm super glad that you guys are here. Yeah, I'm so glad you finally kicked uh, kicked that David guy off the show. At least we know he won't <laughs> baptize our kids. <laughs> Whose idea was it to have him, the like relight the show uh, about you know 50 episodes back or whatever? I, I just don't understand. Ooh, it was your idea. Relight the show. I see the uh, plan words. <laughs> <laughs> he um no, it's it's been great having David. He's unfortunately unable to make it, but. Yes, yes. Um, Hopefully, he'll be on another one of the upcoming episodes. Yes, listeners, there are at least a couple more upcoming episodes that we're aware of. So, please do continue to stay tuned. How are you guys doing? Anything interesting going on in your lives? Anything you've been learning or tech you've been doing? Derek was just telling us about some stuff that he doesn't want in the episode, but he's been doing some interesting things with solar inverters and talking to hardware and things like that. Yeah, actually it's even it's even more boring than solar inverters. It's just the com- the DC combiner boxes up on the roof that they oh, have okay. little boards in them that monitor the voltage that that monitor the amperage the current going through. Yeah. And monitor whether there's arc faults and stuff and uh that's uh so I've been playing with uh RS232 to communicate with these things. Um which is a learning experience for me cuz everybody wants me to use Windows apps to communicate with these boards and I have a Mac and I just can't be bothered to play with windows if I don't have to. So I figured it out. There's a, you know, I, I won't get into details, but I'm very happy. And you nearly, uh, have, you nearly fried your finger and stopped your heart as well. <laughs> yeah. The, yeah. That's a, that's a whole other, it's a whole other thing. Oh, no, <laughs> you don't typically stop your heart when it comes to DC, uh, shocks, but I did, okay. uh, send 700 volts of DC through my, uh, through my chest recently, which is not great, but also not deadly. So right. apparently um, anything under 1,000 volts of DC is considered low voltage when it comes to medical stuff. Oh, okay. So over 1,000 volts, you start getting burned or burned internal organs and stuff, but wow. uh, managed to skip that part. Thank you for educating us non-electricians. <laughs> hey, you're welcome. Medical people. Anytime. Nice. I've been doing some experimenting as well. I don't think I mentioned this last time, but we, um, we're doing bimanual therapy with Josiah for his cerebral palsy. So it's basically getting his right hand to um, teach his left hand, which is his cerebral palsy affected hand, um, how to help him do everyday tasks rather than what we were doing before, which was just forcing him to use his left hand to do basic like hitting toys and things. It's actually making it useful. And the first thing he has to do is push something together and then pull it apart or put it into his, his left hand and then push it together and pull it apart. But pretty much every toy, I don't know if you can believe this, uh, pretty much every toy that does that is either just Velcro-based, which is there's not many like that, or it's magnetized. And his shunt mm. is um, controlled by a magnet setting. So Chantel's quite worried about him getting a magnet and holding it up next to his head or something when he's playing with it because we've been told that could actually have some... Uh, I think someone said to us, but certainly Chantel's also worried about the possibility of him throwing the setting off his shunt. So we've de- yeah. we've developed a toy which um, has Velcro involved, but our therapist told us that that won't be enough feedback. So essentially we've got two components. The bit in his left hand is uh, like an enclosed space. He puts the bit in his right hand into that. That Velcro's together, so there is the tearing of the Velcro when he then pulls it apart. But that has an Arduino light sensor on it which is connected via conductive thread to a uh, lily pad microcontroller board on the other end um, and also has a vibe board and a buzzer, which plays the Star Wars theme song. So when he pulls it out into the light, it plays the song, and then when he puts it back into the dark, it stops. So he's got That's three so different cool. types of feedback going, and I've been learning how to do Arduino programming. <laughs> That's, That's nice. awesome. Fun. What about you, Ben? How's pastoring? I always hated the banter part of the show that Derek always wanted to do, so I feel like I shouldn't say anything right (laughs) now. It's not banter. It's just catching up on your life, man. You haven't been here for so long. And people care. I'm just kidding. The people want to know. The people love you, Ben. Uh, My life is taken up mostly with um, church work and Mm -hmm. school work and family stuff. Cool. So nothing too terribly out of the ordinary. My daughter is turning two on... That's exciting. Next week, a week from today, I think. And so we're throwing her a big rager banger party thing, as the kids say. (laughs) So that should be fun. (laughs) Nice. 
Very All right. Cool. Well, seeing as how Ben hates banter, we've already done that for a little bit. Should we get into the, the guts of the show? Sounds good. All right. Let's kick yeah, it off go for it. with a game. It's the same game as last time, but Ben wasn't here and I was <laughs> devastated. Hey, yo. So we're going to do a quick round of tech news or nah, as David Sweet. wanted to call it, um, which is in place of tech you should know. So same scenario, I'm going to give you, we're going to go one by one. We'll go Ben first and then Derek because that's alphabetical. Uh, I'm going to give you some, about a, you know, a little bit of text. I'm going to read it out and then I'm going to get you to tell me, is that a real tech news story or not? Nah? Is it a fake I'm terrified about my inaccuracy, just so you know. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I, you know, I already know that David thinks this is a complete waste of my time preparing this game, so I've got that embarrassment, so don't worry. I've, I've got to say, this is this is my new favorite thing about the show. It's only happened once, but I love it, and I love that, Well, yes, so you, you did a great job last time, I'm excited for this one. Let's hope it lives up to the same standard. All right, here we go, Ben. Here's your first <laughs> okay. scenario. In COVID-19-related news, a Japanese group has launched a crowdfunding project to create a robotic pillow as a comfort mechanism for those needing something to warm their heart the way an animal does. Their device, called a Kubo, is essentially a furry pillow with a tail that wags in response to being patted or sometimes just randomly to say hello, and therefore presumably gives the sense of spontaneity associated with a real living creature. While the device is wag-ready, it comes sans face, so that the user can imagine it to be whatever type of furry, tail-bearing pet they desire. The Kubo comes in husky grey or French brown, and costs around 80 US dollars. Could this be the perfect tech pet? So Ben, is this real tech news? I just want to say, I listened to the last show, I don't think it's real tech news, and I want to say, if that's correct, props to you, sir, for writing that amazing copy. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> so you think I, it's fake and and i only get the props i think it's, it's fake yes fake <laughs> that's ah! actually real tech news uh, honestly was, i was thinking i was gonna go funny. fake the entire time until you said the colors <laughs> and then i was like ah i don't think he made that part up <laughs> but when you said honestly, you know, US was dollars, in the details. I was like, okay i'm gonna go for it <laughs> um honestly, yeah that was also get props uh, for finding obscure enough like interesting tech stories <laughs> that that qualify for the running yeah for real yeah well th- there you go that's um that's that one all right so next up are you ready for this one derek yep yep okay so well-known australian tech retailer dick smith is entering the home robotics market with a unique kitchen device currently in concept phase that looks a little bit like a death star at the touch of a large button the spherical structure aptly named smithereens breaks into 20 to 30 different pieces depending on the model purchased. With these individual parts now sitting on your kitchen bench, each one bearing a particular symbol, they can be tapped to activate a pre-programmed function. Abilities include monitoring the temperature of water, source, stock, etc., and playing a sound when reaching simmering point and another sound at boiling point, chopping vegetables using laser cutting technology, melting butter or other oil-based products, stirring liquid at a depth of 20 centimetres with a telescopic stirring wand, kneading, rolling, grating, and even scraping large bits of food off dirty dishes. Each action is activated by tapping the smithering component once it is in position, and sensors allow the device, device's components to intelligently move around their environment to achieve the task. Once cooking is complete, the waterproof device can simply be placed on the top shelf of a dishwasher for cleaning before being reassembled into a sphere using the same button used to separate the components originally. It's not clear when the device will be available to consumers, but needless to say, it's creating quite a stir amongst home cooks. <laughs> quite a stir. Is this real tech news? It's or so much easy I... for you to have made up. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to say that's fake. There, there's no... A lot of that is dot points, though, Ben. <laughs> there's no way that... I'm going to say it's, it's never coming out. It's got to be fake. Are you questioning the abilities of Australians to come up with such clever devices? Derek? I'm questioning the <laughs> ability of anybody to come up with that clever and and varied of usefulness of a device. Like the the fact that there are so many so many things that it apparently does and it is in a smallish form factor. I do not I just don't see that having happened yet. I just thought when you said it looked like a death star that it was totally fake. <laughs> No, no, I believe I believe that that would happen. 
Uh, but yes, I said a little bit like a Death Star. So it's spherical <laughs> yeah. and it's got a large button on it. That's pretty yeah, much yeah. where the which where the it's a good description. All right. So your final answer is that is fake tech news. Yes. Correct, Derek. That is yes. fake tech news. I and can't David believe be, you wrote that. That's amazing. <laughs> <laughs> David will be very sad about my uh, the time spent to write that. Anyway, uh, Ben, you're up next. Okay. So hang on. We've got so far. We've got uh, Ben. Ben zero, at zero, and Derek, one. Derek at one. Yeah. All right. So, Ben, here's your next one. With the prevalence of mosquitoes growing due to climate change and many mosquito, uh, many diseases carried by these insects currently not having a cure or vaccine, such as the potentially deadly... Why did I get such disease-centric ones? I don't know. Researchers in Malaysia are working on a small drone-like device that uses heat-seeking, biological scanning, and motion analysis technology to find, track, and ultimately fry mosquitoes within nope. the home or other confined space. That's not real. The device... Do you want me to finish? No, I, I do want you to keep going. I just want okay. to comment on you as you go. The device, currently nicknamed the Mosbito, is no, on its third round of prototypes and results look promising. Similar to the old electric bug zappers found in backyards and butcher shops around the world, the Mosbito is able to closely mimic the mosquito's flight path, zero in on from behind, and deliver a sharp electric zap from close range that stops the bug in its tracks. While the release date is still possibly a couple of years away, it's hoped that the device will greatly reduce the spread of deadly diseases. The retail price won't be overly cheap, but the developers say it will be kept as affordable as possible and hope that uptake by those who can afford it will make production costs lower so that it can be made available the world over. Future plans to expand the device's capabilities to target the common house fly and many species uh, of spiders are also on the horizon. How do you find these stories? (laughs) (laughs) Oh, man. So is this real tech news or fake tech news? The Mosbito is real. That's nicknamed. Nicknamed the Mosbito. It's real. It's real? Real tech news. I think it's real. Well, it's fake. Oh, my goodness. Are you serious? (laughs) Ah, You you had me believe in that one, too. Yeah. All right. Wow. So... Ben, uh, Derek, I'm going to give you the last one just because it's here and we may as well, and we'll see what happens. But you're already at one zero, so well, maybe you should get um, me this one. Well, okay, no, but Derek, want, are you happy for Ben to have another one? I want it. I want <laughs> right. it. I can have it. You can have First it. First in with the buzzer. Uh, a new bathroom device called the Toto Wellness Toilet looks set to solve some smelly problems, namely monitoring your health without requiring any extra activity or change to your regular behaviors by scanning the contents of human waste and monitoring other health information through the skin when one sits on this high-tech throne. I quote, Toilets and people have two unique touch points that cannot be found elsewhere, the skin and human waste. The company says, The wellness toilet is in direct contact with the individual's skin when they are sitting on it and analyzes the waste they deposit. A wealth of wellness data can be collected from fecal matter. End quote. While this idea has been digested by some smart minds at Stanford University in the past, this new device reports its findings back to the company's data centers for analysis and then sends health recommendations via a mobile app to inform the user of changes they can make to improve their health, such as adjustments to their diet. While still in concept stage, the device could apparently plop onto the consumer market in the next few years. Is this real tech news? Or this fake is tech such news? an impressive game that you've put together, Craig. You have the unfortunate you, situation of me actually knowing that this one is real. So it is it is ah. real tech news. There you go. Derek. I apologize. You have the correct I feel like answer. I cheated on that one, but <laughs> Hey, being knowledgeable is not cheating. No, no. I was actually looking for so like there was a several years back there was a video made that was essentially like um parodying Kickstarter videos, like Kickstarter inventor videos that was, I don't know, it was named Pipes or something. And the there's, I'm actually not sure if I can recommend it or not, but it's basically the same premise that it analyzes, you know, analyzes the poop as it goes down and, or, and um, it, you have a unique fingerprint based on uh, a certain area of your body down there. And it was just, it was hilarious. It, it was it was when when I heard about this real news story, it was like it was just too insane to me to be real, but <laughs> it was, and everybody's making these comparisons too. But anyway, you yeah. know, I almost Funny googled stuff. the Kubo, but I didn't. <laughs> <laughs> Clearly, because I got the answer wrong. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, I'm glad you guys. Well, I hope you had fun. Ben probably didn't have as much fun as he was hoping to, but nah. it was a good game anyway. Stop, stop self-deprecating. Fun, fun or not? Awesome. Nah. <laughs> You're the best. You're the best. 
Thus endeth this week's game, and let's move into Tech You Should Use. Amen. So, Ben, I think you said you've got one for this week's Tech You Should Use. Do you want to fire away with that first? And then I I'll do have one. I went and checked the backlog to see if I've ever talked about this, and I don't think I or anyone else have, but you guys can totally correct me if I'm wrong. We're listeners. We have a Slack channel. Listeners of the show, especially longtime listeners of the show, will realize that I have a penchant for finding new email and to-do apps. And calendar apps, <laughs> and never really landing on one. Yes. I've never. Are you still failed. using Proton Mail, or what are you up to now? No, 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 no. I don't even remember that one. <laughs> I've had so many. It was something like that. <clears throat> I I am using Spark for email, but I've talked about that before on the show, so we're not going to talk about that. This is the first to do app I've found that I've used consistently uh, because I have a good workflow. So I read Tim Challey's Do More Better book. Uh, about a year and a half ago and found it really helpful and just took all of his insights and workflow ideas and just like adopted them almost wholesale. And I've tweaked them over time to fit my own life a little bit better. But one thing that he recommends is Todoist. And I started using mm-hmm. it and I love it. And I remember using Todoist, um, I don't know, several years ago when it was newer and not liking it. And I think the reason I didn't like it is because I didn't have a good workflow, which Chally's gave me. And mm-hmm. it works really well. So I do like daily reviews and weekly reviews and I put everything in indiscriminately in my inbox and then I filter it once a day at the morning in the morning and I assign everything a due date and a project and all these things. And it's actually a really, really great app if you know how to use it well. Cool. I've so, seen it heaps of times and been like, I don't know if I need that because I've already got one or two other to-do list apps. But you're saying it's revolutionized things for you a little bit. For me, it has. It might not for okay. everyone. I find if I am going to do it, I will forget about it unless I write it down. So everything I want to do to get done goes into my to-do list and it happens. Hmm. Very cool. Sounds good. Uh, uh, Derek, have you got anything you want to pitch in or are you happy to let this one go by? Unfortunately, I, 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 don't, I don't think I have anything this week. Okay. I also have an app. I feel like often these days we, we talk about apps, but that's see, it's like the easiest thing that there's lots of out there that we can talk about. Um, there's one that I've come across just in the last couple of weeks, which uh, I have started using. It's called BookBuddy. This is probably really nerdy and may not, uh, may not be beneficial to that many people, but I just felt like um, I've got quite a a solid home library going on and often when you know it comes Christmas or birthday time or something my wife will ask me when I'm at work or something what do you want for Christmas what do you want for your birthday um, and I've got like a list of uh, books but sometimes I'll forget to add things to that list and whatever and, and it's hard to remember have I already got that or did I still want that or whatever so I thought if I could digitally catalog my library in an easy way uh, then I was going to uh, it would be worth a shot. Ben, apparently you've tried this before. I have. I found this a long time ago when I was looking for something to do something similar, and I didn't uh-huh. like it because of the design. It's the same app? Yeah. Okay, so BookBuddy, yeah. Um, I don't know. I I don't mind it. There's a few bugs. Well, it seems to be not always great at finding the book that I'm... Like, when you say add a new book, you can do it by scanning barcodes or searching online or adding it manually, which is just manual input. And probably, I don't know, it works a little more than half the time, like six or seven out of 10, I guess. And then the others, you have to manually do something. Uh, but I have found it so far, it seems useful. I mean, you can add... I've been pretty um, nerdy about adding tags and stuff, which I think is also helpful so that when the library grows, I guess, if I'm looking for a book on suffering or ministry or something, I can just open up that tag and see the 12 books I've got that relate to that without having to go to the shelves and... Um, search them out Um, so that in that way it's kind of useful and yeah like I said it it is a digital library the downside is it takes time to (laughs) get everything from um, a book on my shelf to a a book in my book buddy Uh, but that's been something I've been doing sort of while watching tv at night standing in the in the uh, living room next to the bookshelf and just inputting books while watching some mindless tv show so this is I don't know it sounds dated since I used it. I mean, it looks yeah, good. like it's up to date on the new iOS and those sorts of things. Yeah. So. 
Yeah, it's it looks to me it looks pretty like it's been pretty easy to use and it's got a dark mode and all that, those good things. Um, it does if you want to have more than fifty books in there, it, car- it there's a cost which is about eight dollars, uh, but it's a one time fee and one time fees. I'm more likely to pay for something like this than a subscription. So Derek is <laughs> judging anyway. all of us, but I agree. <laughs> for hey, what it's I worth, when I was looking for something, and you haven't gone back. Yeah, for what I was looking when I was looking for something to do what this app does, I actually ended up landing on Goodreads, which I now use almost religiously, which yeah. I know is totally hypocritical because I used to hate on Goodreads design <laughs> all the time. But and I still don't really love their design. But see, I use Goodreads for tracking my reading. I just don't. I've tried to set up different shelves and stuff, but I just find it really clunky for uh, I, like cataloging the books I own. It just doesn't seem as good for that to me. I do love that as well. Anyway, there's some tech you should use. Check it out. So... In this week's main topic, we're going to be discussing the menace of mechanical music, and I'm going to let Ben actually intro to this because it's sort of come out of something that him and Derek were discussing amongst themselves, and then we'll have a chat about it. Sounds great. So I read this essay by John Philip Sousa, American composer, written in 1906 that Derek's going to say more about because he referred me to it. It's about 10 or 11 pages. Derek and I were talking... So one of the things that's happened since I was on the show is I had kids. I have two of them now. One is a two-year-old. The other is a three-month-old. And the two-year-old, I've had to think a lot about technology, screen time, TV, those sorts of things. And Derek and I were talking about how much screen time, like, do you even have screen time rules? How much screen time do you give your kids at various ages and that sort of thing? He has kids similar age, but more of them and older And so it's something he's thought about a lot with his wife and me and my wife are now thinking about it a lot. And so Derek pointed me to this essay for why, Derek? Uh, So basically, so a lot of the, uh, a lot of the conversation around like screen time that that I've found uh, when, when people are talking about this is that people are often very speculative of how, um, of how technology will affect us as humans or about our kids or, or how it'll affect our kids or whatever. Um, and there's often a lot of like, uh, there's a, often a lot of projecting or like slippery slope arguments or like, um, if this is ha- if we are doing this, well, surely that means it will get, it, it, it will, it will pervade our lives even more in a very uncomfortable and way that is seemingly that will seemingly break society and, and make society worse, uh, by that being broken, whatever it is. And, and so, um, I'm a big fan of, yeah, like, uh, like bicycle face, like Craig, Craig just (laughs) texted in the super secret channel, uh, like, like bicycle face. Yeah, exactly. So I'm, I'm a subscriber of a podcast that was up till recently called pessimists archive. Uh, it's now called build for tomorrow and they go through, they often go through um, uh, through uh, older uh, through advents of technology, we'll say, um, and kind of see what the, how that was viewed historically in in the time in the day that it was, and um, how there were a, there were always a lot of negative views on new technology when it comes around. So that's kind of what they're known for. I I love their historical view on this stuff. Um, but one of the things that that stuck with me over the many podcasts was uh, at one point he brought up this article by John Philip Sousa about the menace of mechanical music. And what this is, is John Philip Sousa, um, who is, of course, a, a famous March composer um, from back in the early Stars and Stripes Forever, right? Exactly. Yep, exactly. Um, he was concerned about the advent of phonographs or gramophones or whatever you call it. Um, CD players and MP3 players now. Yeah, recorded music. And how is this going to change society for the worse? And he outlines a bunch of... uh, bunch of ways that it it does that so that so that's kind of the so the reason that i sent this to ben is like is because 
Okay, I know a lot of people say a lot of things about how TVs will alter our, alter our brains, turn them to mush. You know, it creates addictive patterns, whatever. It'll, it it um, destroys creativity. There's so many arguments around screens in general being bad for you. And this kind of a paper, I, I feel like personally, is, is very uh, helpful in providing context to people's comments on this stuff. Because um, often people have thoughts that are like that about technologies that now we find are incredibly mundane and everyday, you know, even um, necessary to life. Like, I, I don't know what I would do not being able to uh, play music every, you know, whenever I wanted to or play podcasts for me, mostly. It's not less music for me, more podcasts. But it's incredible, incredibly valuable part of life that doesn't seem to have destroyed society. So... How then can we project that same kind of logic on uh, current technology like TVs and stuff like that? Anyway, long ramble. Uh, let's get into the paper. Well, to put a finer point on it, Derek, you yeah. said to me that you think the essay is a perfect example of one of these what you would call ridiculous arguments that clearly proved itself wrong over time. Right. Because now we have mechanical music and everybody's still alive and okay. Yeah, yeah, and artists aren't suffering, and uh, um, we're not, uh, uh, instead of going going into war using lots of, uh, using the band and lots of brass, we, and uh, we're, we're not just using a, uh, a phonograph on top of a, an automobile blasting out the tunes. I, yeah, I think that, just very briefly, when you say... Uh, Artists aren't suffering. And, I mean, obviously, there's a few different things there that you just mentioned. Right. I think just just in terms of big picture, before we get into the point, the main points of the article that Ben's going to um, kick off with in a second. I think reading through the thing that stood out to me as a, an overall thing was I think for the most part I'm, I agree with that premise that it's kind of alarmist and and has proven not to be true, at least not in the ways that he was. Um, concern, or the things that he was concerned about aren't necessarily of concern in the way he thought they would be. Um, <clears throat> the thing probably towards the end was the bit where I started to go, maybe some of the stuff about copyright and ownership and payment for royalties and, and music um, performance licensing and all that stuff is kind of where I kind of go, well, there's, I think the evolution in the music industry from record labels, big companies, lots of money, uh, artists treated like, you know, very, very famous people mm -hmm. through the Napster era, uh, music being stolen, uh, and then to music being sold for a dollar a song, uh, where we are now with streaming and Spotify and all those kinds of things. I think obviously there's been an evolutionary journey that's happened there. And I think that sort of stuff, maybe it, you know, it's probably, it's better now than it was in the Napster zone where people were just actually just taking music for free. Like, so streaming's better than that. Um, and and it's better for, yeah, in some ways, but there were probably, you know, there's pros and cons to each other major system that we've had in, in music copyright or music um, purchasing, I guess, from the consumer perspective and from the artist perspective. So I think that's one area where maybe his <clears throat> concerns had some more validity, but, but a lot of the rest of it, I think, I agree, it was... That was kind of the impression I got as well. Yeah, yeah. So as we get into it, maybe I can just read the first two paragraphs. I don't know if that's yes. too long, but that no, seems great. To, okay, that seems to be where he gives kind of the whole argument in a condensed form. So John Philip Sousa, 1906, the menace of mechanical music, sweeping across the country with the speed of a transient fashion in slang or Panama hats, political war cries, or popular novels comes now the mechanical device to sing for us a song, or play for us a piano, in substitute for human skill, intelligence, and soul. Only by harking back to the day of the roller skate or the bicycle craze, when sports of admittedly utility ran to extravagance and virtual madness, can we find a parallel to the way in which these ingenious instruments have invaded every community in the land. 
and if we turn from this comparison in pure mechanics to another way which may fairly claim a similar proportion of music in its soul, we may observe the English sparrow, which, introduced and welcomed in all innocence, lost no time in multiplying itself to the dignity of a pest, to the destruction of a numberless native songbirds, and the invariable regret of those who did not stop to think in time. On a matter upon which I feel so deeply, and which I consider so far-reaching, I am quite willing to be reckoned an alarmist, admittedly swayed in part by personal interest, as well as by the impending harm to American musical art. I foresee a marked deterioration in American music and musical taste, an interruption in the musical development of the country, and a host of other injuries to music in its artistic manifestations by virtue, or rather by vice, of the multiplication of the various music-reproducing machines. When I add to this that I myself and every other popular composer are victims of a serious infringement on our clear moral rights in our own work, I but offer a second reason why the facts and conditions should be made clear to everyone alike in the interest of musical art and of fair play. Well read. So, yeah, basically two points. The first being um, a deterioration in... Uh, general appreciation and production of music and the second being uh rights oriented like basically copyright uh, can can we can we get paid for our work so yeah yeah in that sense i think it's a well-written well-organized essay mm -hmm. um even if you don't agree with all the points um mm -hmm. he makes his case well i think hmm. yeah they don't write essays like they used to <laughs> they should everybody's just it's doing good storms nowadays kids <laughs> So on this point of marked deterioration, he kind of goes into sort of subpoints on a couple of these things, which again, I think are in that section that I read, but maybe just expanded upon a little bit mm -hmm. further. So you can go read the essay and it's worth, I think it's worth reading um, oh, yeah, just sure. as a historical, yeah, oddity and yeah, interesting. But anyway, uh, the first, the first sort of subpoint under point one is soul and this idea of the amateur disappearing and... He even throws in there that congregational singing will suffer uh, because of the mechanical music device. So let's just start with that first point, and you guys can evaluate the argument. Do you agree or disagree? Do you think it's ridiculous like Derek does? Or do you think there's maybe something to, you're a little bit more sympathetic to what Sousa's doing? So I, I actually wouldn't say that I'm... I'm I I'm caricaturing you for the sake okay. of an interesting thing to listen to. Give <laughs> oh, me something to ha. argue about. Harumph! <laughs> Harumph and ahoy! I am evil. <laughs> yes. If you could just put your pinky to your mouth, that would be helpful for what I'm trying to do. Yes. <laughs> no, do tell us, Derek. You're not actually poo-pooing on the whole thing. Yeah. Uh, so here's here's sort of the thing. There. Well, so there's a lot of there's a lot of arguments in here that are. Uh, clearly silly from you know now that we're a hundred years out um was this such as years? give one of those yeah over a hundred years ago okay so so this was one that i circled about con being concerned about inspiring the next generation it's the living breathing example alone meaning like live music that is valuable to the student and can set into motion his creative and performing abilities. The, gen the ingenuity of a phonograph's mechanism may incite the inventive genius to its improvement, but I could not imagine that a performance by it would ever <laughs> inspire embryotic Mendelssohn's, Beethoven's, Mozart's, and Wagner's, or Wagner's, Wagner's? Va Wagner. Wagner's, to the acquirement of technical skill or to the grasp of human possibilities in the art. Yeah, I laughed at that bit too. Well, internally at least. <laughs> mm -hmm. I mean, so I can see where, I can see from his perspective why that makes sense. Because before before then, you, you couldn't just have music in the home without having to actually play the music. Mm. Um, and, and, and Sorry, the idea there is um, the recording yeah. is so much better than I'll ever be, so why should I practice? That's kind of the death of the amateur argument. Yeah, like I could well, just I well, could just listen to Wagner. I don't need to try this, and play music like him. There's two different arguments, though. That's the death of the amateur, which is kind of similar. But the other argument is that people just won't bother to even try and learn at any level because why would they when they right. can have the music without needing to play the music themselves? Right, right. No effort. And I think it's the second still thing. That, value. Mm. Yeah, and the like. I, I get that argument, and I, I get why he thinks that because before you could never have music in the home without 
you playing it, but um, be, because it's it's the argument that uh, people won't be competent unless they're forced to. Um, they they won't do it just because they they think it's cool. Or, or people won't be inspired unless they're unless they hear something firsthand live. Right. Exactly. Yeah. So that so there's a bit that there's a bit of an assumption here that assumes that there's an intangibility to live music, which I would actually agree there is mm-hmm. to some extent. This is this is actually kind of a debate um, when you're uh, I I do or did for a long time swing dancing. I'm I'm still a swing dancer, but I don't get out very much anymore, aside from the pandemic. But um, uh, live music, like pl- getting to dance to a live band, is awesome because you there's there's amount of, there's an amount of electricity in the air, uh, and there's almost communication between the dancers and the band. Like we feed off of each other's energy when we have a live band at, at a dance. On the it's other the same hand, reason I don't like DJs at weddings. I prefer live bands at wedding receptions. Yeah, yeah. So that that's sort of the argument. Hmm. But to Susan's point, lots of people don't prefer live bands. They prefer a playlist because the live band might not know my favorite song. Yeah. yeah. Or my convenience. Songs. There's convenience in recorded music, absolutely. Yeah. I do think uh, the argument against kind of people won't, won't do it for the love of the thing if they can just listen to Wagner is it kind of defies the definition of amateur, right? Like the amateur mm-hmm. is the one who does it without needing to be paid for it or motivated mm-hmm. to it manipulated coerced whatever toward it well perfect but they just it. do it because they, just they do love it for the enjoyment yeah right and so you still have justin bieber becoming famous on youtube right right yeah and and to his as, as a credit to his argument he's probably right like there are going to be people today that don't pick up an instrument that may have picked up an instrument if they had no other um access to music because but is that's the the point is though i i i think that recorded music is additive more than subtractive in the grand scheme of things because because then people who would otherwise put their energy towards playing an instrument that don't really enjoy it or are now able to go do something else that they really enjoy and also really enjoy people's good music yeah i think that's something that I find hard to kind of know exactly what I feel about that because I know looking back on my own experience, um, you know, I think the first instrument I played was the violin and that was because I had a dream about old King Cole um, and <laughs> he was merry old soul uh, and he had fiddlers and I was like, well, that sounds like a fun environment. I was so young. I was like three or something and I said to my parents, I want to play the violin. So I did. Uh, I played it probably terribly and did like two community concerts and then gave it up and moved to the piano. But, uh, moving to the piano, I think was, and then did that for a few years and moved eventually to bass guitar where I've been since 1998. But I think what, uh, you know, after that weird violin dream thing, I think the other two were uh, certainly with bass guitar. It was from hearing stuff like a lot of, uh, the, the, there was a necessity for me to learn it originally, um, to, to be part of a chapel band at school, which I was happy to do because I wanted to do it. But then my my progression in learning that instrument, my wanting to get better for my own benefit and for my own enjoyment of what I was doing was mostly from listening to recordings. Like I went to gigs every now and then and I ended up being in bands that played live shows. Um, but the most of my music listening was off a CD or an MP3. So that did inspire me to learn and to get better and to just spend time doing it and enjoying it. Um, so I think I, my own experience is just one in a, you know, billions of people in the, in the world, but certainly the, um, the mechanism of getting music on demand from some kind of music player that I can then play along to or be inspired by or learn from, that worked for me. I didn't require a live band to give me that level of inspiration that he seems to be worried that people won't have. And the other thing, I mean, and when Derek, you said, you know, he may be partially right, there might be some people who haven't learnt because they've just listened and heard recorded music and gone, well, that's too good. I could never do that. And so why bother? The idea of that is sad to me. Uh, and I hope that's not the case for too many people. But at the same time, like you said, people who actually just decide it's not for them, 
who am I to then say, well, hang on, maybe it is for you. Maybe you really should be, you know, if they've moved on and done something else that they enjoy just as much, then that's, you know, each person to their own. I think the other thing I, I wanted to say about this, you know, Ben sort of started this bit off by talking about um, the, the line in substitution for human skill, intelligence, and soul. I think the trouble that I had from the outset a little bit was that that, a, the word soul when used in this context in relation to music has always been to me a little vague. Like, what is that actually getting at? So, um, Derek, you were talking about like the energy and the electricity that comes out of music when it's performed live. Is that the soul or is it the intent behind the music? Because at the bottom of the first page, he's talking about uh, sincerity. Like he, he says, Wagner representing the claim of this movement declared again and again, I will not write even one measure of music that is not thoroughly sincere. Uh, and so maybe sincerity is about honesty in music and ex personal expression and that kind of thing. But there's there they can be different things for different people. What that what that means. Um, and so I think just saying that this new technology is going to suck that out of the music is is too far. It's too long a bridge to cross. If if you know what I mean. It doesn't mean I love all electronic music. I think a lot of it is d extremely derivative and boring, and I don't listen to a lot of it. Um, but I think that, you know, decrying the medium because it's electronic and because it's mechanical and whatever in its underpinnings is not a good place to, is not a great argument, I don't think. Sorry for the monologue. Well, and, and to go back to the, um, go back for a, for a minute to the, the live versus recorded music thing, uh, Sousa was not wrong about there's a there's a big difference between there being live and recorded music, um, but he didn't account for the fact that live music would still have a very healthy and uh, valued place in society over a hundred years from now, despite us being able to literally have millions of songs on our phones or in our from pockets. the best of the best. Yeah, from the best of the best, uh, we still crave. Uh, we still super enjoy that live performance. Um, well, and in some ways, the recorded music pushes you to the concert. Right. Yeah. I mean, it's probably reciprocal in relationship, but mm. they, yeah. they feed off of each other. But mm -hmm. So, uh, like, one of the things about, uh, like, s uh, speculative stuff like this is that they as people assume that think that this will change things and it and because these things will change like this, then society will be worse. Well, it could change exactly like that, and society might be better for it. It's very different, maybe, than what it is now. But if the kids are, if the kids decide they don't want to play songs and they just like carrying music around uh, in their pockets, or you know, are carrying a big phonograph around with lots and lots of records or cylinders or whatever. <laughs> Um, maybe that's or a better Sousa for society. Or, yeah. Um, maybe no, that's kidding. better for society. I, I do think this is, this is the latent progressive in you, Derek. Uh, I yeah. yep. come yep. to things with a more conservative bent. <laughs> uh, and I don't necessarily mean politically. I just mean like uh, a skepticism of novelty, a respect for, you know, tradition and historical realities. Not saying that you would not come with those things but i think you're more generally more optimistic about the future and what's ahead and i'm maybe more pessimistic i'll paint myself in the negative light um, no you're right though I, I i think i think that's a valid way of of putting it i don't mind being labeled uh, progressive when it comes to technology um, yeah right because that is that because i i have been historically where you're at and then i was like uh, and not to say that where you're at is a bad place to be. We need people like you too. I just hear a lot of those people, so I decided to go for the more opti optimistic route. I do think, uh, yeah. So to to the point of how do you look at history? Um, and this is fast forwarding a little bit, but but the second point of his argument, right? The copyright laws and the constitutional argument is really interesting because I think, and Craig brought this up earlier. I I do think Spotify, in some sense, legitimates. Seuss's argument like yeah no just I, I totally agree pennies on the dollar for artists which is that's what's happening with Spotify right now that's why everyone was concerned about them coming to the US and other countries um, 
And it's probably to the hundredth degree or thousandth degree what Sousa was worried about with artists actually being paid for their craft. Although I do wonder if it... So, you know, the contrast I drew earlier was big budget record label. You know, you're signed to a record label, you get X number of dollars, which can be in the hundreds of thousands or even millions at times, to make a record. And then that record is distributed through a distribution company, whatever. Like, you know, you sell it in record stores and people buy the physical media and it costs whatever it is, $30 or $25 or something for a, uh, an album. Um, that, the shift then to, like, like you said, being, you know, a number of cents per stream or whatever it is, or, you know, a tiny percentage of um, yeah, it's fraction of what of we would consider genuine. What is it? I think it's a fraction of cents per stream. Of cents, yeah. Sorry, that's what I mean. Like a tiny percentage even of that. Um, mm-hmm. It is... Obviously, there's a, a huge shift there. I guess what it may... Maybe the upside... I don't know. I probably sit in between you two guys in terms of optimism, pessimism on that scale. And I think... You know, the silver lining maybe of streaming services is that, uh, yes, there's less of the um, the big budget thing getting the return on the, on the big budget production maybe, or that's, you know, that, that takes longer to get the money back or whatever. But I think probably what it has done is allowed more smaller artists to Certainly. get more direct income, even though it's right. a smaller income, they're getting more direct income back from their output than they would have previously. Yeah, and even to be discovered on Spotify in a way that they wouldn't in the past because they're now recommended right alongside Justin Bieber or whatever, you know. So I think there's there's positives to the negative there. For sure. Right. I do think it's helpful for us to point out, I think the three of us would agree on this, this is not to gloss over the difficult and complex problem of ownership over something like music and like we would all agree that the laborer deserves his wages because it's in the bible um but how you apply that to a musician who makes a song that then gets played millions of times and how you compensate them for that is really tricky and i don't mean to gloss over that i just also think generally most there's consensus i think that what spotify's done at least originally uh seemed to not strike that balance very well so Mm-hmm. Right. So this this whole second argument, I think I think is interesting because we have because it's it's more concrete. Like it's more about well, it's it's about the money and less about human behavior, which is easier to actually talk about and and reason through because humans are crazy. So he sort of ends the whole thing like talking about the the inventor of of the the gramophone or the phonograph or whatever, um, or or even maybe the recording being like uh, in court saying that, oh, I have I have the right to reproduce his music without paying him, whatever, whatever, like, and saying things that clearly on paper they, they don't, they don't read well. And uh, it it's not, of, of course, yeah, like Ben said, the laborer deserves his wages. Um, so I agree. John Philip Sousa should be paid, you know, whatever is fair for his marches being being recorded and and sold. But um, that that seemed to correct itself at some point. Like that was corrected in the legal system, so that artists could get paid. Because obviously, you had to buy CDs and 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 artists, you know, created created records and, and stuff that. There's a whole industry that created around supporting artists for their music uh, being recorded. Um, and then, yeah, recently it, it kind of got upended again by streaming. Well, actually, so I, I guess the the we could go back to the Napster days of being like, okay, people really wanted to listen to music, lots of music. They, Napster That's your was read on the Napster days. People really wanted to listen to music. <laughs> I don't know. My I, read on I, the Napster days is really people are a bunch of dirty, Napster. rotten pirates, and they steal things that don't belong <laughs> to them. Yes, my favorite thing is stealing. So let me steal this music because uh, that just gets me off. Now, if people wanted to listen to music and they oh, didn't have, and this was the easiest way to access music, and so they got but it off without Napster. paying for it. You acknowledge that Napster? Right. No, no, no. Of course, of course, okay. people were pirating, stealing yeah. music. I- illegally right. they wanted to listen to music and it was easy to do it illegally so they did it. <laughs> <Exactly>. right <laughs> that's a fair summary 
So, and that's what one of the things he brings up too towards the end. I think it's the second page from the end is the piracy problem, which is mm-hmm. legitimate, right? Mm-hmm. Well, and then and then again, like after Napster happened, uh, iTunes came along and was like, let's let's sell music really easily so that people can buy good quality music for a, you know a fair amount of money, and then that blew up, and you know Apple became huge, you know a huge uh, player in in the music realm simply because they made it easy to buy music and people bought lots and lots of music that way and artists got paid for right. again. And then Spotify comes along and starts paying, you know, people next to nothing. And, and I, I wasn't super close on that whole saga cause I didn't, I thought streaming was honestly not going to last very long. So that was me. Uh, that was me failing in my predictions. You pulled a Sousa. I did. I pulled a Sousa. I'm still pessimistic about streaming, though, and maybe that's yeah. just my my own personal thing. I just don't. I mean, I have Spotify, but I only have the free. I don't have. I don't pay for premium, and I actually just don't enjoy it that much. Like, I don't like hearing ads in my in amongst my music. If you give me a choice, and if I had unending money for the rest of my life, I would always prefer at least a digital album from Apple, you know, from iTunes, or the even better, a physical product. Like, I'm you know collecting vinyl records, and I've got a pretty massive city collection i like and there are people who like me i know out there who do like that um and and so you know in some way i guess i guess i kind of maybe this is delusional but i kind of force myself to think of streaming as like topping up that like don't worry craig the artists are still getting people to buy people are still buying physical media or buying an album on on <laughs> itunes for a reasonable price uh, and then the streaming is just like added extra, but I know that's not the case because so many people have gone to streaming that it's the predominant way a lot of people take, consume music. That is delusional, Craig, and let me tell you why. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. I just said it was. No, I'm, I'm just saying kidding. like it would be nice if if that was the case, if streaming was like something that people did uh, sort of on the side, but because it has become the way to listen to music in our culture, I think it, it does raise problems for me in you know in the way that I think about it because I do feel like it, it's such a small royalty um, that it takes so long for them to get back what they actually probably deserve for the creative output. And I'll confess ignorance here. I don't know how the prices are set. I don't know what a song is worth. But I do tend to think, to Seuss's point, the question's not being answered morally or ethically. It's just the price is being set by the market. And so Apple decides a song is worth a dollar, 99 cents and then a couple of years later it's $1.29 or Spotify says it's, you know, pennies on the dollar for a million streams or whatever. But that's not <laughs> that's not answering the question from a moral ethical labor deserves his wages type of angle. It's just saying what are the vast majority of people comfortable with. So you, what uh, you're saying is maybe there should be like the the price of a song that then gets properly um taken up with inflation and stuff like that is that kind of a better system like where we actually have a quantitative like a, an original song is worth this amount of money but then like your big artists are going to want more for their songs than your indie band uh, now we're solving a problem that the answer is probably not going to be accepted by the market no matter how we slice it correct right? yeah so, exactly oh i'm because, sure because the music industry changes so much has changed so much over the hundred years like obviously we we all still listen to music we all still uh, value music, but how artists earn their money changes so much um, over the course of a lifetime. So, well, and there's a large degree of subjectivity around what a song's worth because, like you said, Craig, I mean, some artists are better than others. Hopefully, that's not a uh, dramatic or controversial point. But then, even I could say that, and I could say, you know, who my favorite band is, and you guys would say it's somebody else, and you might think their songs are worth more, and there's the subjectivity right there. So, so something else that I've been thinking about streaming as well, that, you know, maybe it makes me feel a bit better about it. If you look at digitally purchasing music or even purchasing an album, you know, you're, say you're ba- paying roughly a dollar a song or a dollar twenty a song, whatever it works out to. So I've got, like I said, a bunch of CDs that I can listen to whenever I want within reason and I can listen to them a, a thousand times. I can listen to them 10,000 times. I can listen to them until the thing wears out or gets scratched up and isn't usable anymore. Then I might have to buy another copy. So essentially I've paid whatever it was, let's say $20 for the album when it first came out or when I first purchased it. 
And I can then use those songs uh, and I can go away on holiday and put them in my CD player at my holiday house or whatever. You know, like that music is in some ways portable with me like an MP3 would be and it's cost me that amount of money. Streaming, I can stream it unending amounts of times. But each time I do it, something rather than nothing is going back into the artist's pocket. So, the upside of streaming is it's an ongoing revenue stream as opposed to a one-time revenue stream uh, that, you know, per, per purchaser, per listener. Per um, stream, yeah. Yeah. So, so they continue, although it's a smaller amount, they continue earning the, the dollar over a longer period of time. Um, so, that's one thing that, you know, when we said my previous idyllic version of how streaming could sit within the music landscape is unre- unrealistic, that is one thing that has made me feel a little more comfortable with the idea. And I think, you know, through COVID, a lot of, I've been hearing from a couple of my favorite bands that, you know, it's it's now, it's merch and live shows that are, that, that's like an influx of money for them. Although it costs money to put on a live show and it costs money to create the merch. Um, but the streaming is like a, is, is an ongoing stream at the same time of, of revenue. But COVID took out the live shows thing. So then people have been doing stre- live streaming that you pay to go to the live stream, which is essentially just watching your the band play live, but on, over a computer. What a um, wild turn of events, man! <laughs> we are so living just, in the weirdest. Uh, like times. a weird mixture of all. Th- it's a weird mixture of all three. Um, but I think, you know, one one of those bands even said, like, if you if all our listeners can listen to this particular album out, which I think they own the publishing rights to, as well as just the. You know, so they, they own everything, like that whole... They didn't go through a record company or whatever. Anyway, they basically said, if you stream this this album or this collection of songs, this greatest hits or whatever it was, every day during your COVID lockdown, however long that lasts for, that will massively help us out because they can look at their listener count and go, you know, we know this this many listeners listening to this thing, this many songs for once a day equals that. Um, and so... That's actually probably a pretty cool thing for them to be able to do, <laughs> to be able to say to their to their people through other technology, social media, this will help out. If you can do this, it helps this band that you enjoy, that you appreciate, continue to do what it's doing in this way through streaming, even though it's only a tiny little... It's time taken out of your day and it's a tiny bit of money incrementally adding up to a bigger bit of money. You know what I mean? Real-time fact check. One Spotify stream of one song... Gives point mm-hmm. zero zero four dollars to the artist. That means you need to play a song two hundred and fifty times to make what it equals on iTunes one dollar. Yeah, for us for a thousand dollars, you have to play a song a quarter million times, two hundred fifty thousand. But that music uh, is much more easily reaching a wider audience than it would have been sitting on a. S- a CD store shelf. Yeah, I mean, for what it's worth, I've listened to, using streaming, I have listened to way more artists than I would have listened to otherwise because I don't really want to spend out of my pocket money to pay for an album that I don't know for sure that I'll like. So, yeah, I mean, I I absolutely have quote-unquote supported (laughs) more artists with my .004 dollar um than I would have otherwise over the last couple of years that I've been subscribed to Apple Music. Which, again, sounds silly, but there's also lots of other people that have done that too, I'm sure. If David were here, he'd give us a great analogy of why that's terrible, Derek. <laughs> that guy. It's like you had a cup of water, and you could give it to one person who hasn't had a drink in three days. But instead, you chose to give give one drop to a thousand people. So by helping everyone, you helped no one. And then, uh, then there were a lot of other people that gave their their cup of water to all these people too. Right. No, I, I yeah, think of course it's going to be market share that that hopefully solves, uh, maybe not solves problems, but makes the problem not so bad. Hopefully, mm-hmm. like you guys are saying, more people streaming more songs still translates to artists getting something reasonable. In this case of Spotify, I don't think it does, but maybe it gets closer. I want to thank you guys for coming on again. It's been a great time getting to chat to you both. Uh, It's been a long time in between podcast drinks, but uh, very valuable and very enjoyable uh, nonetheless. So I also want to just um, plug once again our Slack channel, our Slack workspace, Slack team, whatever that thing is where you go on Slack and you talk to other people. We have one of those. If you go to 
slack.techreformation.com. You can still uh, sign up that way and get an email. Come and chat to us. Find the episode discussion channel. Uh, tell us your thoughts and just generally get to know people. Uh, we'd love to talk to you there. Uh, in the meantime, this has been Tech Reformation. Thanks for listening and we'll talk to you next time. Oh, you know what? You know what tech I what tech you should use? I should have I should have said this week. <laughs> Craig, go put no. this in. No, you don't have to do, do tell anything us. with this. Yeah, that's right. You should go tell us what go is. get that sweet, sweet new vaccine that's out for COVID if you have access to it. It's good tech, highly recommend. I only glitch a little every so often. And uh <laughs> What is that red mark on your arm? Is it spreading? It says it says six. Derek, ah, no! <laughs> and then it says, oh, there's just more more sixes being drawn out now. That's unfortunate. Did you get Pfizer or AstraZeneca? You would have got Pfizer, right? Uh, Moderna, actually. Uh, <clears throat> okay. I I only have my first shot. Tanya has uh, two now, as of today. So, okay. Derek, yeah, in 10 years when they're running the uh, commercials that go a little bit something like this, if you or anyone you know took the COVID-19 <laughs> vaccine, call 1-800-GET-A-LAWYER. I'll call them on your behalf. Oh, yes. Oh, that's so good.